We are in Genesis chapter 40 and 41. That is on page 33 to 35 if you are using the Pew Bible. Uh, it's also, there's an outline on the back side of the insert in your worship guide there if you want to take notes. The title of the message this morning is God Doesn't Forget. Well, have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? You hear promises, right? You hear people like me get up here and talk about God's faithfulness and God's steadfast love and how God is always with us. We've been talking about this over and over in Genesis. But sometimes you struggle to really believe it. Sometimes you feel like God has forgotten you. Let me ask you another question. How long are you willing to wait for God to fulfill his promises? In this season of Advent, we talk about longing. We talk about waiting for Christ's return. But this is hard for us, right? We live in a day of instant everything. We live in a day where you can click and within 48 hours, it's at your door, right? Thank you, Amazon Prime. And I love Amazon Prime, but... It's hard in a day where we really don't have to wait for much, right? Everything is just at the push of a button or the swipe or the thumbprint, right? It's instant. It's right there. The Bible ends with Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Well, it's been 2,000 years, right? That doesn't seem soon, For most of us, two years doesn't seem soon, let alone 20 or 40 or 400 or 2,000, right? But it is good for our hearts to have to wait. It is good for us to have to cry out, how long, O Lord? Longing creates dependence. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and it confronts us in our sin and our self-centeredness. Longing and waiting is good for our souls. We read in our New Testament reading in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, Jesus saying, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And we have to understand the context of that saying by Jesus, of that, of that quote from Isaiah. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophetic word. There had been no scriptures written. There had been no prophets speaking. It was 400 years of darkness for God's people until Jesus comes on the scene, until the light comes and shines in the darkness. This also reflects an earlier time of captivity, 400 years of slavery in Egypt for God's people earlier in the Old Testament. And Joseph's story in Genesis that we're looking at is really kind of a microcosm. It's a small picture of this bigger idea of of captivity, of longing, of waiting. And it points us to our need to be rescued. It points us to our need of a deliverer and of a redeemer. If you haven't been with us, just kind of bring you up to speed with where we're at. We've been looking at the life of Joseph for the last several weeks. In chapter 37, Joseph... Uh, He's the favorite brother of his father, and his brothers aren't too happy about that. He's the favorite son of his father. 
Did I say brother? He's a favorite son of his father. And his brothers are not too happy about that. His father gives him a special coat. And Joseph has a couple dreams uh, where his brothers bow down to him, where his father and mother and brothers bow down to him. And the brothers are like, okay, buddy, it's time for you to go. They devise this plan. They're going to kill him. But one of the brothers steps in and says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into this pit. They throw him into the pit, and then they sell him. He ends up, at the end of that chapter, he ends up down in Egypt in the house of a guy named Potiphar. Chapter 38 is a, is a different story. Chapter 39 comes back to Joseph. Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and we read the beginning of chapter 39. We looked at this last week. Uh, it says that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful. So Joseph is down here in Egypt, away from his family, but God is with him, and God is blessing him. But then things take a turn for the worse. Potiphar's wife has her eyes on Joseph. She's trying to get him to sleep with her. She keeps harassing him. And he says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against the Lord, right? Joseph, in his integrity, trusts God. He walks with God. But what happens? He gets thrown into the pit, right? She grabs his garment off of him and says to her husband, this, this Hebrew came in to, to laugh at me, right? To, to, to be with me, to defile me. And Potiphar flies off the handle, throws Joseph into prison, and there he is. But the chapter ends with the same words with which it began, that the Lord was with Joseph, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now this isn't a sermon about success, but I encourage you to think about success in the life of Joseph. Think about success in the life of someone like him who walked with God. And I challenge you to weigh the nonsensical messages of success that our culture throws at us with this story of Joseph, right? We see all the books, all the blogs, all the things about success. And I want to say that this is true success. This type of God-honoring success might get you thrown into a pit, okay? The main idea, though, of our message today is that God doesn't forget his promises to his people, and he reminds us to wait on him to fulfill them in his timing. God doesn't forget his people, his promises to his people, and he reminds us to wait on him to fulfill them in his timing. So we're going to dig in here to chapter 40 and 41. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of this. I'm going to kind of narrate some of it, and then I'll read portions of it, so I'll, I'll give you a heads up when we're going to be reading. But it starts off with Joseph being forgotten by men. It says, sometime after this, so Joseph has been here in prison for some time, Pharaoh's chief baker and chief cupbearer each dream a dream. They're in prison because they got into trouble with Pharaoh, They're, they end up in prison, and one night they both dream a dream. Now notice here this, this doubling of dreams, okay? Joseph earlier on had two dreams. Here the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are each going to have a dream, and in the next chapter, Pharaoh is going to have two dreams. So there's always this doubling of dreams. There's significance to that. Joseph comes in the next morning and notices that they're troubled. In verses 7 and 8, he says, So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? 
Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer tells Joseph his dream after this. Joseph interprets the dream. And the interpretation is that after three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to your office. Okay? Then we pick up in verse 14. After this, Joseph says to the chief cupbearer, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph here asks for two things. The first one is, remember me. Remember me. When you get out, remember me. The second, do me the kindness. This word here for kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is the word for steadfast love. It's God's covenant faithfulness. It's really the most powerful word of love that we have in the Old Testament. It's the word that was used in chapter 39 when Joseph, is in, when Joseph first gets thrown into prison after the ordeal in Potiphar's house, and it says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. So Joseph is saying, God showed me said steadfast love. Please, when you get out, show me steadfast love. So do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. Now this word gets translated here as mention. It's the exact same word in verse 14, remember. So he's saying, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to remember me to Pharaoh. He's doubling, he's saying, don't forget me, remember me, remember me, right? Do me kindness, show me love, remember me when you get out. And then Joseph, in verse 15, he protests his innocence. He says, first of all, I was stolen, right? I was stolen out of my own land. And then I'm here in this pit. I have done nothing wrong to deserve this. So there is a double injustice happening here. Following this plea to the chief cupbearer, Joseph tells the chief baker that in three days, he's going to be, his head is going to be lifted up, but it's going to be lifted up from him. Pharaoh is going to hang him. He is going to be killed. And then that comes to pass. Both dreams are fulfilled. The chief cupbearer is restored, and the chief baker is hanged. We read in verse 23, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What is going on here, God? Joseph did everything right. He's in prison unjustly because he wouldn't sleep with another man's wife. Now he just gave you the credit for interpreting, being able to interpret the dreams. And all he did was make a simple request to be remembered, right? Just remember, when you get out, just remember me. A simple request. God, you are powerful enough to give the chief cupbearer this dream and to fulfill it and to restore him. Why could you not bring Joseph to his mind? How hard is that? Do you ever feel like that? God, what's going on with my life? I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm seeking you. I'm seeking to obey you, to trust you, to give you the glory when good things happen to me. And here I sit in this pit. God, why does it feel like you have forgotten me? 
want to share with you from a book. It's called God's Grace in Your Suffering by David Paulison. And he bases the book on the four stanzas from the song we just sang, How Firm a Foundation. And this chapter is called, I Am With You. And this is from the second stanza, which we sang, Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. I want to read this. It's a little long, so bear with me. But he's talking about focusing on how do we deal with situations, how do we deal with difficulties when it feels like God has forgotten us. This is titled, Reactions to Avoid. He says, notice how this stanza describes our inward experience of hardship. How do you react to serious suffering? Fear and dismay cover the ground pretty well. If you are honest, you feel rocked, overwhelmed, preoccupied, confused, upset, endangered. You struggle, always. Struggle describes a wrestling match going on inside. You are grappling with something. If you do not feel the pressure or the knife edge of what is happening to you, you'd be a stone, not a human being. God's image bearers are not impervious. Up to a point, fear and dismay are natural reactions. But problems arise when distress and apprehension become godless. The honest anguish of faith slips into godless upset. As troubles settle in, they claim your thought life, conversations, emotions, future, faith. They occupy wakeful hours at night. If you fall asleep, they wake up with you first thing in the morning. Dismay well covers a whole range of temptations. Tendencies from troubled to unglued, from disappointed to hopeless, from worried to panicky, from frustrated to enraged. There are also the dishonest reactions that aim to silence dismay in the face of life's troubles. Pay attention to what he's saying here. Some people intentionally mute dismaying realities by doing mental gymnastics that keep suffering at arm's length. But scripture never commends Stoics. Other people become cynical, hard-boiled, brutal, and invulnerable, not likely readers of a book with your suffering in the title. But scripture never commends cynics. Other people recoil from life, so fearful of being hurt that they withdraw into a shell of excruciating self-protection. Wishing to avoid pain is natural, but scripture never commends isolation as a strategy. Some people escape into the false, feel-good refuges of entertainment, recreation, food, drink, and drugs. But scripture never commends addiction as a way to handle pain. Scripture does commend honestly facing weakness and pain, as Jesus and the Psalms did both for integrity's sake and in order to love others who also suffer. Honesty feels the weight of things that arouse fear and dismay because fearsome and dismaying things do happen to us. 
Hardships give us good reason to be anxious, so God gives better reasons to trust him. The problem is is not that we feel troubled by trouble and pained by pain. Something hurtful should hurt. The problem is that God slides away into irrelevance when we obsess over suffering or compulsively avoid it. God inhabits a vague afterthought, weightless and distant in comparison to the thing immediately pressing upon us. Or we fabricate a God who will magically make everything better if we can only catch his ear. Pain naturally triggers a cascade of apprehension, unhappiness, and distress. And because of the deviance of our hearts, often triggers bad reactions of unbelief and idolatry. That is, unless we remember what our hymn's second stanza is telling us. Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe that God is with you, even in the worst times? We don't just sing these songs because they sound cool, right? We sing these songs because they're true. We sing these songs because our hearts need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. That even when we feel like we're in the pit of life, that God is still with us. God was the foundation of Joseph's life. Despite all the junk, despite all the injustices that happened to him, Joseph still looked to God. He still trusted in him. So let's continue on and see what happens next. If you're following along there in the outline, the second section, Joseph is remembered, rescued, and exalted by God. Chapter 41 begins, after two whole years. Imagine Joseph's reaction while he's waiting in prison, right? The chief cupbearer was just released. Joseph says, remember me, right? Imagine the next day when, the, when he hears the door opening. All right, here we go. Oh, denied, right? Days go by. Weeks go by. What? Like, what is going on? Like, did they just, maybe they killed the chief cupbearer? I don't know. What, like, what's, you know, Joseph's probably just going crazy here, right? What is going on? Two whole years. Do you think Joseph gave up though? Do you think he gave up hoping and dreaming of the day when he would be remembered and released? Well, now the things get really interesting here. Now it's Pharaoh's turn, right? The, the, the head over the whole land, the top dog, right? Pharaoh dreams two dreams. And he has these two troubling dreams The first one, there are seven attractive cows, attractive and plump cows. They get eaten up by seven ugly and skinny cows. Pharaoh's troubled. Then he has another dream that these seven grains are, seven ears of grain are plump, ears of grain are eaten up by seven skinny ears of grain. And his spirit, just like the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, Pharaoh's spirit is troubled. And none of his magicians can interpret these dreams to him. And suddenly, the chief cupbearer, 
remembers and he says to Pharaoh in verse 9 of chapter 41, I remember my offenses today. And he remembers Joseph after two years. He tells Pharaoh about how Joseph interpreted his dreams to him two years earlier and how that got him out of prison. Then we pick up in verse 14. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh goes on to tell Joseph his dreams and he explains again that his magicians couldn't interpret them. And we're going to see God intervene here in a big time way and use Joseph in a powerful way as he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Let's pick up in verse 25. We're going to read verse 25 through 46. This is a little bigger section here. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephanath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So we have this scene here where Joseph is now standing before the most powerful man in the whole entire world, telling him that there is a God in heaven who is more powerful than him. Can you imagine the boldness that that took? There is a God who controls nature. Pharaoh, there is a God who controls the weather patterns. And he has given Joseph wisdom for how to deal with this problem that is coming, this famine that is going to come. They're going to reserve food for seven years so that when the famine comes, the land may not perish through the famine. And then Pharaoh's response to his servants here is kind of comical, right? Like, where can we find someone? And Joseph's like, um, I just interpreted your dream and gave you this plan, right? So Pharaoh says, all right, Joseph, you're the man with the plan. Let's do this, right? So Joseph rises to power There's a complete reversal of fortunes. He goes from the pit to second highest in command in the land of Egypt. He gets a signet ring from Pharaoh. He gets new clothes from Pharaoh and a gold chain. Now, think about the significance of this new clothing, right? Joseph, as a young boy, had this beautiful robe, right, that his father gave him. But his brothers ripped it off of him and threw him in a pit. Then Joseph's in Potiphar's house. What happens? Gets his garment ripped off, right? Then he gets thrown in prison. He's wearing prison clothes. He goes from one day wearing prison clothes to the next day wearing fine linen and being second in command in Egypt. The other interesting thing here is verse 43 there where he's riding in the chariot. They call out before him, bow the knee, right? If you remember back to the dream, we're starting to see a fulfillment of, this, of people bowing down, right? Bowing down before him. So God is starting to bring all of these things to pass. Then Pharaoh changes his name. He gives him an Egyptian name. And this name, Zaphonath Paniah, not 100% sure what it means, but it's likely that it means God speaks and he lives. God speaks and he lives. God interpreted the dream. God spoke to Pharaoh through Joseph, and Joseph went really from death to life, right? So there's significant meaning there in this new name that Joseph gets. And God's hand, again, God's hand is all over this. We're starting to see the fulfillment of the things that God has promised. We're starting to see the fulfillment and the reason why Joseph had gone through all of this suffering. But at the end of the day, it's still bigger than Joseph. It's not just about him. This chapter is going to end with a description of how things will shake out with the preparation for the famine and the, at the beginning of the famine. We're going to see that. But right in the middle, we're told about Joseph's two sons who were born before the famine hit. This is in verses 51 and 52. And if you're familiar, if you've read through the Old Testament, you've seen these names a lot because when we read about the allotment that is given to the tribes of Israel, we never see Joseph's name mentioned, right? We read about the half-tribe of Manasseh, 
Ephraim, and Manasseh. So those were Joseph's two sons who the inheritance went to. And these are the two sons that are born to him in Egypt. Their names are very significant. Manasseh's name, you see there in verse 51, says, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. God has made me forget, (laughs) right? We've seen this idea of Joseph being forgotten. And now by God's grace, Joseph is able to forget everything that he went to and forget his father's house. I don't think think it means forget my father's house like I don't care about them anymore. But he realizes that is so far away and God has got him in this place. Uh, Ephraim, the, the second son, his name means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So again, both of the names of these sons are very significant for Joseph and what he has been going through. This language of fruitful here, it's the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament, be fruitful and multiply, right? So there's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. There's fulfillment of the covenant happening here as God's people continue to flourish, right? Joseph is in the pit in Egypt, and God works through all of that and fulfills his promises, fulfills the promise for descendants to be born, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, and to be fruitful in the land. So there's great fulfillment that is happening there. And the chapter really ends with kind of even a bigger picture of that, that all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. So the promise to Abraham was that all the earth would be blessed through his offspring, right? Here we're seeing that all the world is going to be kept alive through Abraham's offspring in a foreign land. God is going to use him. And this story of Joseph, it's really an incredible story, isn't it? It's kind of a fairy tale story. It's going to kind of have this fairy tale ending. This is how we want the story to go, right? We want the story to go this way even in our day. God raises up some powerful, charismatic, handsome guy who's really smart and he's going to do something that's going to save all of these people, right? Well, that's how we want it to work. Have you ever had that wish? Like, God, why don't you just save this famous movie star so he'll just tell everybody about you? Or why don't you use some famous athlete to have some radical conversion and then all these people will hear about Jesus and they'll all get saved? Or a politician or whoever, somebody in power, right? Well, God may choose to work that way. But what if there's a different way? What if the Joseph story prepares us for an even more amazing story? What if there is a ruler even more majestic than Pharaoh who was born into relative obscurity in the countryside where Joseph's ancestors would later on settle? What if he would grow up in even more obscurity until one day he started making some claims about how he was going to save the world? A world that was suffering from a famine far greater than the famine that Joseph and the Egyptians were suffering through. What if he also told people that there was only one place you could go to find bread to live? There is one place to go to find bread and live. And he would say that he would satisfy their true spiritual hunger and that he was the bread of life. I'm so thankful for Joseph's life and this story because it points us so clearly to Jesus. 
It points us so clearly to his betrayal, right? Points us to his, his death, being thrown in the pit, and his resurrection, right? Joseph being brought up out of the pit. God raised him up. God restored him. God exalted him as king and ruler over all. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bow the knee to Joseph. Now we bow the knee to Jesus. We talk a lot about Christ's second coming during Advent, and it will be a glorious day. Every knee will bow. Every single person will bow their knee on that day. It will either be in humble submission and praise, or it will be in judgment. Which of, it will it, which of those will it be for you? I want you to hear... Jesus' invitation. This is for all of us. And we need to be reminded of these words. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray. God, You have spoken so clearly to us through Your Word, through the picture of Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, being thrown into the pit unjustly, And being raised up in your timing and for your glory. And how that points us so beautifully to our Savior. Who was betrayed by men. Who was treated unjustly. Who was killed for crimes he did not commit. But who did not stay in the pit. God, you raised him up on the third day. And you promise us that if we look to him, that we will be raised up with him. God, may all of us in this room look to Christ, the true bread. May we eat from that bread and be satisfied. May we drink from his rivers of life and never thirst again. God, you are gracious to us. Your love is steadfast, and we praise you for that. God, help us to remember, to remember who we are in you, to remember what you have done, and to proclaim that message to the world. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.